Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. In the early days of Ethereum, going back 2014-2015, as Ethereum was launching and proof of work was being talked about and being utilized as the consensus, one of the architects right behind Vitalik Buterin, very famous gentleman, Vlad Zemfir. Vlad was working on a new consensus algorithm called Correct by Construction Casper POS, Proof of Stake, uh, CBC Casper. CBC Casper is a consensus algorithm that completely changes everything we know about how crypto works. And many, many years on, Casper Labs is about to launch their next blockchain, which is going to allow for the trilemma of scale, decentralization and security without worrying about losing that good user experience. Today on the show, we had the chief executive officer of Adaptive Holdings, Renal Manohar. They are the lead R&D shop for Casper Labs and raised a lot of money to be able to do the bold claim on what they say they're going to be able to do. It was a wonderful episode. Give some love to the sponsors and I'll talk to you guys right in a minute. If you're buying, selling or holding crypto, you are a low hanging fruit for the IRS. And for many years, I've been waiting for a good solution where I can be proactive in my taxes, but more importantly, to sleep at night. Before the IRS picks you for an examination, subscribe to our newest sponsor, Crypto Tax Audit. Crypto Tax Audit is an audit protection service designed for the needs of the crypto trader. That's you, me, and really everyone else. It acts like an insurance policy. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself including preparing the required anti-money laundering forms. If the IRS examines your crypto reporting on your tax return, the experts at Crypto Tax Audit will provide all the IRS representation and tax law research at no charge. The statute of limitations on a crypto tax return is six years. Crypto Tax Audit covers you regardless of what year the IRS examines, all for a low price of $97. Best of all, You can sleep well knowing that the best crypto tax gurus are ready to defend you. Crypto Tax Audit is a service of the Donnelly Tax Law. All new subscribers of Crypto Tax Audit will get a copy of the latest ebook, Does My Crypto Tax Returns Need Surgery? It's a phenomenal book. You get it as soon as you sign up. It's a short but super, super powerful book. While other services are reactive, Crypto Tax Audit are proactive and give you the tools like their crypto tax health check so you can reduce your chances of getting an IRS letter in the first place. No one likes that certified letter from the IRS. Donnelly Tax Law specializes in complex crypto tax return preparation. No situation is too complex for them. So check them out at CryptoTaxAudit.com. And listen, guys, start defending yourself today. You're a super loyal podcast listener, and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that... Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy to use crypto on ramp and digital asset broker. They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda 
is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free, regularly updated, and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz. So make sure you check it out, bitpanda.com. They are a big sponsor of ours, and please give them some love because they love me. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today I'm with Miral Manohar, the founder and CEO of Adaptive Holdings and Casper Labs. Mernal, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks a ton, Charlie. It's uh, my pleasure. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because over the course of the show, I uh, get to meet some really cool people and I get to, um, you know, interface with them. And I've been very fortunate to be um, an advisor of Casper Labs uh, for the past few months and working with you. But what what's interesting is is I'm, I'm starting to see a shift in um, – and it's really nice, dude. It's it's. I'm starting to see a shift in, um, uh, not just the thought process of you know the people in the space of of members of the industry of ones who work, design, architect, and build. Um, I'm seeing a, a a transition and a shift in mentality, but also thought processes in in how we look at earlier technical development in our industry. And 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 one of the examples is. Uh, a question that I ask is, do you believe that, um, and, I'll, and I'll ask you uh, before we get into everything, do you believe that, that, that Bitcoin specifically, not everything else, do you, do you believe Bitcoin uh, is a culmination of many technologies that is going to continue to evolve and you know, amalgamate together and, and you'll, you'll continue to see like an evolution of the technology, but also us as, uh, as users of that technology or is like the white paper and Bitcoin as we know it the end all be all in terms of how the Bitcoin blockchain is supposed to be? And um, then and Satoshi's work was the uh, final, the finality of all this work kind of put together. That's a that's a really interesting question. I know. Um, I, I just thought of it now. I promise you, yeah. I didn't like plan. I'm just I, I'm thinking. I'm talking to you. I'm in my head. And it, sorry, I'm going to let you answer. Yeah, um, so I'll give a two-level answer to that. Um, I think Bitcoin as a protocol is likely not to change much, meaning if you think about the base level, um, uh, the base level characteristics of it, like limited supply up to 21 million, uh, the way things are mined, and you know the full democratized and decentralized access anyone can spin up a machine and basically start mining bitcoin and be part of that network i don't think that would change and i hope it doesn't that being said i do think that the technology should evolve and i really hope it does you know with a system that decentralized it's a little hard but 
you know, as with any technology, you will find ways to make things more efficient. You'll find ways to process transactions faster. You'll find ways to reduce latency. You'll find ways to, you know, appropriately adjust what size blocks are to eke out, you know, the best of what the internet has to offer. You know, said another way, what we have today might require augmentation in a world where we have 5G, lower latency systems. Um, who knows? The packet size on the internet might double, triple, quadruple. And as a result, Bitcoin is not a technology in isolation. It depends on other layers of the technology, technology stack that we know as the internet today. And I do hope that um, it augments itself and improves over time. That being said, I'd, I'd hate to see the core characteristics be modeled with because that's the reason why it has so many believers, uh, the immutability. But I think technical upgrades to make it faster and more efficient and safer are things we should do um, you know, as uh, innovations occur. If you look at you know, what the internet looked like 20 years ago um, and people said, hey, I'm never going to update my website no matter what, uh, that would, you know, in retrospect, that would seem like a bad decision. Uh, even... But, you know, you hope that the underlying business model stays the same. Yeah, you you had uh, you wrote and I just want to read you something that you wrote um, or you said that was written down. And you said, I always find it ironic when people criticize earlier blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum's for apparent technical problems that their newer that their newer blockchains try to solve. And then you said, yeah, it's like saying that Charles Babbage and Alan Turing suck because their computers couldn't play games. So when I talked about that that shift earlier, that's that's kind of what I meant is that um, unfortunately you do see that a lot today. You see a lot of people that are putting down earlier blockchains that they learn from, um, but you're not doing that um, with with Casper Labs. Um, you're not doing that here. Uh, can you explain, you know, what you're doing and 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 how you want different uh, different blockchains, you want different projects, you want everyone to, it's an open uh, concept and you want everyone to, it's an open invitation, you want everyone to be involved. Yeah, I mean, I still believe that quote. I can't remember when exactly I said it, but I do believe, you know, uh, looking at older technology and complaining about it, you have to recognize what was going on at the time and what tools were available at the time. Um, the way I view Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, some of the projects that have come you know, before a lot of the new projects is, you know, they were massive tectonic shifts um, in the industry. They've created a platform that has enabled all the work that's happening. I, I view everything that we do and what a lot of other blockchains are doing as standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, rather than criticize it, I think we should think about augmentations. Um, now, whether that's to those protocols themselves or brand new protocols, um, you know, I, I view it as, you know, we're just learning from uh, what's happened in the past. And I wouldn't even say mistakes. I mean, for their time, they were absolutely revolutionary and world changing. Um, we do share a lot of the same ethos of those projects, though. You know, we, we, we are steadfast believers in decentralization. We don't want uh, permissioning or, you know, centralization of any kind. We think anyone who wants to join the network should be allowed to. And, you know, that's something that we learned from those protocols. Um, in addition to that, you know, we're, we're really an open invitation, both from the joining the network perspective, but also contribution to the network. We're a fully open source project. We have... Um, you know, we have our GitHub and 
every single line of code is visible to people and anyone can actually contribute to the project. You know, in, in, in the initial stages of a project, there's typically a core team that builds it. And it's only at later stages that you see a lot of um, improvement proposals and uh, new code and pull requests coming in from the community at large. We're not at that stage yet, but I'm optimistic that we'll get there and, you know, it, it, it stops becoming a project built by a core team and then you know, after the first release becomes a project that, you know, is open to everyone that anyone can contribute on. It's just practical realities that, you know, we can't right now. It's probably not the right time. No, you're taking, listen, you're taking all the, 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 the right things that was done um, during the 2017, 2018, um, you know, crazy market that we had. You're taking all the good things. You're not taking the bad. And one of the good things is, is, Building the protocol first, building the community first, uh, building the network first, and you know not not spending money on marketing, not doing crazy amounts of marketing like you were telling me earlier, and then and then and then and then and then then you launch the protocol and and the token and everything when it's all working. So the question I have um, for you, um, you know, and talking about like the, the kind of the news of the day is that um, it seems like. The the uh, chairman of the of the SEC she she um, talked about this safe harbor proposal and it seems like you know that would be the most perfect situation right basically saying hey like you can launch a company um, and you know you follow all the rules and everything for three years and as long as you're fully decentralized within three years you're good to go. It, it's kind of like following what, what you guys have been doing. It's, the, you know, like a similar situation, like what you just said. Eventually, it won't be you doing the pull request. It'll be the community. Uh, yeah, that's that's certainly the goal. Uh, the goal is to get, get to that stage of decentralization and uh, a community-owned network um, as soon as possible. And yeah, I agree. I think, I think, um, if the SEC were to pass that safe harbor, it would be great for the industry. I think, um, you know, the Internet was kind of primarily built in the United States because, you know, there wasn't a lot of, um, call it, uh, regulatory backlash against it. And look, regulation's necessary. We need to make sure, you know, things are done appropriately and people don't abuse systems. But the lack of clarity in the United States has been a little bit, you know, uh, it, it's made people extremely conservative and or made people, you know, move elsewhere. And I think it's, uh, you know, the safe harbor would be amazing. Um, there's a very clear line in the sand. It says you have 36 months to get your project fully decentralized or you're not complying. And that kind of clarity, I think, will really help innovation. It's it, almost it like also, a perfect uh, uh, law. Like it's yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited. I hope it happens. Uh, I think it'll be great for the industry at large. So, so it's, let's start from the beginning. We we kind of jumped a little ahead a little bit. I know I know that um, uh, you know the the architect of of CBC Casper Vlad Zemfir. Um, um, what's the relationship? So so you guys are working together. He's you know the R the 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 R and D shop of of Casper Labs. But this this has been in development since 2014. This consensus algorithm. Can you kind of tell me how it all got together um, when the R and D started being developed and why you decided to take it to the next level? Because um, as far as I understand, wasn't Casper 
initially supposed to be implemented in Ethereum itself. How did this all like? Where does everything all all fit into into this? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, CBC Casper was a uh, protocol upgrade, you know, proposed for Ethereum, but it's an it's an open source protocol, right? So it's it's you know, I think the eventual goal was to have multiple blockchains adopt it. Um, we decided, you know, we, we, we love the underlying ethos of the protocol and decided to adopt it. Um, you know, we started R&D as Casper Labs on this project in November of 2018. And we've assembled a team uh, since then of about 25 to 27 developers and researchers, most of them working full time on this project. Uh, we were fortunate in the early stages of this project through about September of last year um, to have uh, Vlad help us on research. Uh, we released um, we released a white paper uh, called the Highway Protocol in October of 2019, um, which was published under the names of Daniel Kane, Vlad Zamfir, Mike Andreas, and you know other other researchers on our uh, project. And um, you know, right now. Um, we're, we're more in the implementation phase, so we're primarily working on implementing the code. Uh, we, we think, you know, the protocols, to a large extent, specified, and now the implementation work has begun. What is the goal of Casper Labs? Like, what are you expanding on, and what was it about this protocol going back to 2014? I mean, in, in the... In the earliest days of Ethereum, you guys are all early Ethereum investors, as am I. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk on on scalability on Ethereum. There's a lot of talk on, you know, Prog POW. There's, you know, miners are potentially leaving now to, to mine on, on different chains. You, you're seeing like uh, uh, chains launch like, like Ethercoin that are just basically, you know, coins that are hybrids of Ethereum with Prog POW now. I mean, there's a lot of questions on, on the future of, of Ethereum. Um, do you think it's a result of of the fact of, of Ethereum's success? Or do you think um, that, you know, a lot of the questions of, of scaling and, and the future is the opposite of, of people saying that Ethereum doesn't w kind of work as, as we know it today? Look, I think, I think it's because of the success. Um, you know, I, 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 I really think uh, they'll pull it off eventually and, you know, um, be able to scale the network. But going back to your initial question, like why why were we interested in CBC Casper? So I'll, I'll start with why we like proof of stake and then talk about CBC Casper after that. Um, proof of stake is great for two reasons. So reason one, if you think about the way proof of work works right now, you know, you, you're basically generating a lot of random numbers to, to gain security and those don't have any future utility once they've been done. So basically you've done work uh, and you've expended resources, but those resources don't actually contribute to anything other than security. Uh, in proof of stake, you you basically refocus all that processing power um, toward uh, doing mostly actual useful work, which is you know validating transactions, conducting those transactions, which require some computation, and forming consensus. So that's one thing that's great about proof of stake. And the second thing that's great about proof of stake is um, the security actually scales with the value of the network. So, you know, 40% of tokens are bonded to the network and the network doubles in value. The cost to attack the network has also now doubled in value. And that's, that's you know, long-term uh, a good 
underlying design. You know, I'm vastly simplifying both concepts here, but that's why I think proof of stake is super interesting. The reason why I, you know, CBC Casper is super interesting or, you know, Casper-like protocols is uh, the lack of permissioning. I think um, a lot of attempts to scale have some form of permissioning or centralization. And, you know, it's hard to maintain full decentralization I know. and a permissionless system. Right. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's hard. It's a lever system. One lever goes up, the other lever goes down. So how do you do it? Lots of lots of what is get the consensus algorithm right, right? So some of it is get the consensus algorithm right. We think uh, with highway protocol, we're we're on something that's provably live and doesn't really require, um, you know, super nodes or permission nodes or anything like that. And I think the second thing is, you know, it goes back to the point I was making about, you know, when you talk to me about Bitcoin and whether it'll be upgraded. Some of it's just good old fashioned engineering. If you can, if you can figure out how to make your execution engine faster, you know now a single node processes more transactions than it would otherwise, and so you know you've you've lifted efficiency a bit there. Um, if you can make blocks smaller but still be as effective, uh, you've increased efficiency yet again because you need less time for everyone to download the blocks, and you know if you could pass it along in a couple of internet packets, um, you know you you now have a much faster system. It's a very good point, by the way. Just want to throw that out there. Oh, sorry, continue. Oh, no, no, thank you. Uh, yeah, so a lot of it just comes down to, you know, engineering tweaks here and there. You know, the internet didn't get faster because of, like, one thing, but hundreds of little tweaks here and there. And, you know, with, with blockchains, I expect that to happen, you know. That's a great statement. So so we, we look at the internet to what it is today and we don't remember how many times, like, just think about this, everyone, like how many times did you guys change um, different types of, of, uh, of internet service at home, right? In the beginning you had DSL and then maybe you had, or you dial up and then you had maybe DSL or ADSL and then maybe you had something else in the interim and then everyone jumped to, you know, you had a high speed cable, uh, not in the phone lines anymore. And then it goes back to file. So how many times, I mean, it's, these are things that are constantly upgrading. You're constantly changing. And so how can we not expect uh, blockchains to be the, the you know, be the same thing, but talking about, you know, proof of stake versus proof of work and, and some of the other consensus algorithms, I understand what you're saying. And I really like what you said, where you said that, you know, how do you upgrade and scale blockchains, uh, potentially, you know, even introducing some governance without, uh, sacrificing, um, decentralization and a lot of protocols do it a lot of pro and i've had and and i've had the the creators of these protocols on this show that tell me yes we are sacrificing decentralization for the sake of better governance or for the sake of a stronger better blockchain now i personally don't believe we should be sacrificing those things so the so the question that i have for you i know it's such a long-winded question is uh going you know let's go a little more specific um, I understand that I think the listeners understand the concepts that when you want to make a blockchain more decentralized and secure, um, you're, you're breaking it down into multiple, multiple parts, but you're making it more difficult, therefore, for changes to be made, for upgrades to happen, for scaling to potentially happen, but all these different things. Um, how do you solve that by not, you know, sacrificing decentralization you mentioned something i don't want to interrupt you but you mentioned uh, the highway protocol what's that 
Oh, the highway protocol is, um, you know, it's our flavor of CBC Casper. Um, if people go to our website, casperlabs.io, they can uh, download the white paper. Um, but basically, you know, it's, um, it's a provably live version of CBC Casper. So it, it, it tells you how you can, you can actually form consensus uh, without you know, one of the big risks usually with any consensus protocol is that the system never comes to consensus. So, you know, someone's able to basically put a denial of service attack on the system. And really, this is an augmentation to CBC Casper um, that is provably uh, and mathematically provably live. Uh, but you know, for 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 all intents and purposes, it's a it's a flavor of CBC Casper. Uh, the white paper was released uh, September 2019, and you know, I, I invite people to read it. Uh, if you go uh, to our website, it's under the heading "The Casper Labs Highway Protocol" on the main page. So, I mean, so how do you do that? How do you sacrifice? How do you uh, expand and grow a a a blockchain um, by not sacrificing decentralization uh, as it relates to this when it comes to proof of stake. And then I guess to expand on that um, is do you think proof of stake is as, uh, is as fair when it comes to distribution as proof of work? Both, both great questions. Um, so let's handle the first one. Um, actually, look, it, it depends on what your goal is. Um, you can get a lot, lot faster than current proof of work chains without sacrificing decentralization, if you do a lot of the engineering fixes as well that I talked about. I mean, if you just think about it, right, like 99, 98 to 99% of, I'm sure that number is exaggerated, 90% plus in proof of work of, uh, you know, computation is used to generate random numbers. If you just refocus that computational effort, you've already seen, you know, a uh, order of magnitude faster transaction per second. Um, wh what I'd say we do is we're not, we're not playing the TPS war game. Uh, we think, you know, if, if a system isn't truly decentralized, it doesn't matter how many transactions per second it does, it's not doing what a blockchain is meant to do, which is have a completely decentralized system. So we, we'd expect orders of mag magnitude faster, but we've not, you know, put a magical number out there saying, oh, we will hit 40,000 TPS or something like that. And that enables flexibility. We, we think we'll be, you know, hundreds or something like that right out the gate. And with sharding and other things, you know, the system can eventually grow and scale even more. But really, we, you know, it's, it's by not keeping like any sort of crazy target like that, it enables you to stay true to what we actually want to do, which is build a fully decentralized system. Um, does that does that answer the first part? Yes. Great. Um, and I guess the second part, uh, could you repeat the second question again, Charlie? Sorry. Distribution when it comes oh, to yeah. proof of stake. Th this one's tricky. Um, look, proof of... They both have pro pros and cons, right? Proof of work, anyone can add hardware to the system and, you know, mine. But the con is once you've, uh, in order to actually do it efficiently now, because the industry has become a CapEx-based industry, you actually need a ton of capital and you need ongoing capital. So it's actually become, you know, a highly regimented business now, uh, proof of work mining. 
uh, you know, the days when you could just set up a Bitcoin or Ethereum node, which I'm sure you've done at some point, Charlie, like those days, it's much harder to do now unless you have millions of dollars or at least hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Um, it's not even profitable to, to proof of work mine. Uh, proof of stake, on the other hand, I think the barrier to entry is much lower. Uh, you don't need crazy expensive hardware and you can acquire as much of the token as you want. Um, that being said, initial distribution is, you know, an issue. Um, it's something we're trying to solve. Uh, we, we, we're trying to figure out what's the best way to have democratized access to all these underlying tokens, especially at the very, very early stages um, uh, of distribution. You know, what, what kind of happens is you have centralized ownership. Of a bulk of the tokens, and then the retail investors and you know the, the enthusiasts in the project only get to participate really, really late in the game. Yeah, and usually at you know an extremely high price. Um, you know, we, we we have some ideas on how to do that, and you know we're we're working on ways to you know really democratize access. I think you know it just comes down to how many people ho hold this at the initial stages, and if you have thousands instead of dozens that's a good thing um you know we're, we're, we're trying to be innovative uh that way but we'll see what happens we're, we're excited to try and uh, democratize access as much as possible are you worried about that dreadful certified letter from the irs are you worried about the irs auditing your crypto returns then you need crypto tax audit they provide irs audit defense designed for the crypto owner Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-laundering forms. Subscribe today at CryptoTaxAudit.com for $97. That's CryptoTaxAudit.com. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically, what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And, and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. One of the, for me, at least, the one of the bigger issues I have with proof of stake long term is is uh, it has that fatal flaw in the beginning. There's no way to ensure, I guess, distribution that it's kind of fair for everyone over time without having a like centralized issuer. You have one person 
you know, issuing uh, in the beginning and or it's over time. Proof of work kind of uh, solved that. And maybe that's why Ethereum was proof of work. It is proof of work right now. And I mean, I think the, the ball is still out. Um, what's going to happen when it moves away from, from pr- proof of work? What do you think will happen? Do you think um, all the miners on Ethereum will go will be okay with it? Do you think there'll be like three coins that'll be split at what point? What's your take on 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 you know the the new consensus algorithm, na- the new um, mining algorithm now with with uh, you know with Pro PLW and to not be able to have ASICs uh, mine on on Ethereum? What do you think of that? I, you know, I've been I've been spending so much time in proof of stake land that I wouldn't be an expert to really um, to to really comment on the proof of uh, you know the 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 new like changes that prevent ASIC mining. Um, I do think in general, when protocols, you know, if everyone comes to agreement who's mining on the system, um, if protocols, you know, upgrade to prevent different kinds of attacks or hacks into the system, it's it's by and large a good thing. This in particular, I, I'm not educated enough about it to have um, you know a great opinion. Uh, but on your other question, like what happens as Ethereum shifts over to proof of stake? Look, I'm just speculating. I'm not sure, but I, I do think it's likely that there will be two tokens. I do think um, the proof of work chain will remain, and um, you know, some people will continue mining that chain, or you know, it, it, that might be Ethereum Classic. Not not sure exactly what happens, uh, but I do think there will be a running proof of work version of Ethereum as well as a running proof of stake version of Ethereum. If, if, if I were to guess. It's so interesting because you, you have to like almost like war game out these these different uh, different ideas, but also like how things can how things can play out. And, you know, if you think about it just practically, you know, um, the hardware you need for proof of work mining versus the hardware you need for proof of stake mining is completely different. They, they don't look alike at all, really. I mean, the electricity input, which is a large part of the cost, is kind of the same, but the hardware footprint, you know, you have GPUs and ASICs, which are great for proof of work mining because they're great at, you know, a GPU's, you know, like graphics thing on sure. your computer. It's great at like pumping out pixels. As a result, it's excellent at pumping out a bunch of random numbers quickly. Uh, in proof of stake, you don't need to do that. So it's more a CPU type build, you know, just standard processors. But doesn't proof of stake use the same amount of electricity as proof of work? It shouldn't. Uh, no, no. It, 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 you, you, you need less hardware because uh, proof of work, your, uh, the amount of, uh, call it reward you get, is directly proportional to how much hardware you've outlaid on the system. In proof of stake, the amount of reward you get is based on two things, primarily the amount of stake you have. So, you know, you could run a large stake on, you know, not crazy hardware like if if you have 10 times the stake you don't need 10 times the hardware now for practical reasons you might choose to not you know put all your eggs in one basket and you know split that across multiple nodes but that's your choice um so you know the, the amount of stake you have doesn't mandate how much hardware you need whereas how much reward you want to get in proof of work mandates how much hardware you need but is proof of is is proof of work's only downfall the environmental issues, because that seems to be the response I have when when I have conversations over, you know, proof of stake versus proof of work in the long term. It seems like the environmental issues is, is like the only real 
response, a real issue I see people tell me about proof of work? I'd actually boil it down to three things. I I, I, I get that point, but I, I think there's there's a couple of other things. So first, um, environmental issue, you know, I'd, I'd actually categorize that as energy inefficiency, right? Um, it's, it's just, it, it takes a lot of energy. And wherever you get that from, you know, it's just energy that could be spent elsewhere. And so I guess that sort of covers the environmental issue. Um, the two other things are, one, it scales with the amount of hardware out there less so than the value of the underlying system. And that's for two reasons. One is just in general, you know, in proof of stake, it scales very nicely with the value of the network because the amount staked goes up, hence the cost of attack has also gone up by a proportional amount. Uh, but the second thing is also, especially if you have a declining emission curve, um, you know, they'll probably fix this by having some sort of transaction fees, which should become the major, you know, contributor to mining. But if you think about it, when the emission goes down, the amount of hardware you want to put against the system also kind of goes down if prices don't go up. What I'm saying is like, assume a Bitcoin's value stays stagnant, right? So it stays at $4,000. If you're earning 12 and a half per block now, and then 6.25 per block later, the amount of hardware you can still use to profitably mine has uh, gone down by half. So there are some descaling effects, you know, as um, emissions come down. And, you know, the, 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 we're, we're nowhere close to that stage right now. You know, Bitcoin protocol has about 140 years left, um, give or take, before, you know, the the curve of emission basically hits zero or uh, for all practical purposes is zero. And so the amount of hardware you can profitably put against the network has also halved because the emission has halved. Now, historically, the reason why this hasn't been a problem is uh, it's still been profitable and the price action has, you know, kept it, um, has, has kept it uh, profitable. You know, the price of Bitcoin keeps going up. But at, at some point, you know, you will start to see some descaling effects of this emission uh, being kept cut in half. You know, it, you know, at, at some point, it's going to be like a Bitcoin per block, right? And if the price is around where it is today, uh, you you'd automatically expect less hardware to be against. I mean, that honestly, that's that's something that I tout as like. The best part about Bitcoin is that it, oh. it, it, it I feel like it ensures. No, no, it is, it is a real. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Just to be clear, you know, I'm, I'm just saying it's a different modality. Oh, got uh, it. Yeah, I see what you're I, saying. I'm okay. saying. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying like one of the criticisms of, uh, of proof of work we were talking about was, you know, energy efficiency. And this is another criticism of it. I'm not saying it's, it's a good criticism, though. No, I get it. Yeah. Um, but when it, going back to the environmental efficiency, um, I hear people saying that Bitcoin is, you know, proof of work uses energy that um, could be used elsewhere. But it's but it's not like miners are using energy right now that 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 could be used elsewhere because it's not the case. They're almost like creating their own energy. It's not like they're diverting energy or they're outbidding hospitals and schools. Therefore, those hospitals and schools, you know, even though it's a free market, are not getting uh, uh, the electric. It's not the case. In fact, a lot of miners are just, you know, building their own hydroelectric dams or buying up energy. I know that 
um, you know, uh, um, um, what's the what's the mining company? Um, Genesis Mining is the largest customer for electricity in Iceland, keeping the 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 Icelandic utility afloat. If it wasn't for the miners, this this energy wouldn't be used. Um, so I guess I guess I have a hard time, and I wanna I wanna not understand it, but I guess I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm talking more about the premise in general than you know what's happening today you know i'm not an environmentalist and you know i'm not i'm not an energy researcher i'm not you know i've not i've not done enough work to have like an ultra credible opinion here uh my, my point is just when i say could be used elsewhere i'm, I'm literally just talking about the computation right um that 90 of energy that you've used to generate random numbers those random numbers don't have any further utility you know, you've generated them and now they're lost to the ether. And all I'm saying is a more efficient system would like to refocus that effort to do something useful, like processing a transaction, sending a data packet somewhere, uh, give, delivering you a video. So, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about this more from an engineering and tech side, you know, as an, as an engineer by education, you know, for me, like when I, when I look at a problem, I'm always thinking of, okay, what's the most efficient way in which we can do this? And so, there might be some macroeconomic effects of, you know, this this energy or computation usage. But my primary concern is really just coming from a technical and engineering perspective that, hey, let's not, you know, use 90 percent of the you know processing power to generate hashes. Uh, let's use it for something else. And, and that's that's my point of view. I yeah, mean, I see that now. That's that's kind of uh, where a lot of people um that's where we end up in, in the conversations. And it's good. It's good to have these these talks about, you know, about this. So. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I see your point, too. Right. It's not it's not black and white. Like what, what you talked about, like the Iceland utility. It, it's really not black and white. But, you know, I, I'm looking at this more as a computer scientist. No, I see you're saying else. when we have technological advances, we need to always be on top of efficiency and always be growing and growing and growing and, and changing and uh, and figuring out what works the best when it comes to, to distribution. Um, we don't I don't usually talk about like tokens or things like that, but I know that you guys have have been working on like a, a better form of distribution that eventually other projects can use. Uh, you're calling it a, a democratic token sale. Can you kind of go into that and, and, and explain why you think it's it could be the, you know, a, a good uh, system for other projects to use down the road? Yeah, we're calling it a DEPO, a democratic um, ex exchange private offering. Um, you know, it's a non-transferable sale. And of course, you know, you, you, U.S. investors are completely blocked. Uh, but um, the way the way it really works is using exchanges, wallets, other partners to basically uh, have retail investors or even, you know, um, small, uh, small investors have access to to uh, part of our network uh, right from the ground floor. Uh, we think, you know, some of the issues has been, you know, usually the ground floor, which are usually, you know, the cheapest entry point um, is only given to, you know, venture capitalists, high net worth individuals, et cetera. And we've sort of tried to figure a way and, hey, how, how do we get thousands of people uh, to have access to this and feel, you know, part of the project right from the get go and effectively be a validator on the system? 
So it's not fully chopped out. There will be some uh, announcements coming up, but we're uh, we're super excited to do this. And of course, you know, if, um, um, other projects want to talk to us on 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 how it works, we'd we'd be glad to help. Um, any anything that you know drives innovation in the industry is good for us all. What do you think about about Lightning? You had written some. Uh someone someone did a, an AMA of you and I and I read it I think it was like a year or two ago and you gave a good response uh, about lining one of the better ones um meant you basically uh well I don't want to tell you what you said but uh can you can you you know talk about what your thoughts are on that wait wait actually give give me a brief on what I said I'm, I'm, well so I I liked what you said I'm, because you know the reason I'm asking you these things is because your your responses are are very level headed and, and and technically savvy. But you know a lot of people on Twitter and and a lot of the listeners they get frustrated because they can't see you know the the forest through the trees. It, it, frankly, Twitter you know and the forums and Reddit it's filled with a lot of bullshit. So people don't understand a basic thing like what is lightning, but also. Why is it good? But also, what are the technical downsides of it? Because nothing is perfect. Nothing is efficient. Your response was essentially that Lightning is great, but it still relies on, you know, the, the layer one to oh. um, be very efficient. And if, you know, layer one is is at a huge bottleneck, then how are you going to have layer two transactions? Yeah. Because so that was your, it was a very good response and it's a real response. Yeah, I can, I can, yeah, I can, I can dig into that. So look, I, overall, uh, I'm a fan of lightning network. I'm a fan of layer two solutions in general. I think, I think they're great for this space and they've been great for a lot of other spaces. I mean, if you think about it, you know, Airbnb and Uber are entire businesses built on Google maps. Google maps is your equivalent of layer one. Their entire infrastructure is built on top of it, of Google Maps. And similarly, you know, PayPal, Stripe, Square, entire infrastructures, entire companies built on top of the Visa, MasterCard, and other networks. And these are all like analogous to layer two solutions. You know, it's not a perfect analogy. It's a, but it's a good one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, this is this has existed and <clears throat> all it's done is brought these uh, protocols and underlying infrastructures to, you know, a wider group of people. What, what I wanted to explain, though, is like people need to understand the trade-off here, right? What's happening is if the, having a good layer two solution doesn't mean we shouldn't still be working on the layer one solution. Reason being, what you're essentially doing with the layer two solution is you're doing some form of batching, right? You're getting all the security from the underlying layer one solution, but you're batching transactions up at layer two and then posting them to the network. Now, the amount of transactions you have to batch is completely correlated to how fast the underlying layer one solution is. If it's extremely fast, you don't have to batch that much at a time. And therefore, people are pretty comfortable and know that you know security is being handled <clears throat> by a truly decentralized underlying protocol. On the other hand, if it's very, very slow, you have to batch a ton of transactions. Um, so you know, if you knew, for example, that you were doing a PayPal transfer, and they had to wait till you know ten million dollars worth of transactions came up at the same time, and they had to batch those and put them on the Visa network. You wouldn't use it, and so I think Lightning is great. I think it, it'll help the Bitcoin network, but I, I don't think that should negate you know some of the good research that's going on to try and make Bitcoin faster and more efficient. I think Layer One protocols also need to improve, and I guess that was my primary point. Like. You don't stop working on layer one because layer two exists. Google, Google Maps keeps updating their, uh, you know, 
software as well. I heard that. Um, I don't know if it's true, but you ever wonder why Uber like is the worst at directions, their maps. And I heard that Uber leases their maps from like the sanitation department. That's why, you know, their their GPS will always take the, the driver to, the, to your back door or something like that. I don't know if it's true, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't. I, I have noticed that recently Uber's uh, at least it's kind of funny. I see like a car and then three minutes later, it's flying towards my house uh, on the on the map software. It has been a bit funky lately, but I don't know what infrastructure they're using right now. But I, I have noticed that as well. I, I like Uber. Well, I don't know. I, I use like Uber Lyft or whatever. Uh, you know, I I'm always um, using different ones and, and changing them around. Um, I guess for OPSEC or whatever. Yep. Yep. Got it. Yeah. I, me too. I, I probably use like three Ubers a day. Uh, you know, I live in New York, so, you know, owning a car is really impractical. And so it's public transportation all the way. I, uh, we used to live in New York. We left and moved to Florida, but one of the reasons was that like just, um, living in a city is, it, I guess we were ready to like move on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a place like Noel's. Um, I'm still loving it, but I'm sure at some point I may feel differently. Uh, but, you know, I, right now it's, it's been seven years and, you know, I, 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 I love this city. Manhattan is, is awesome. So we talked about, uh, it really is, we talked about uh, layer one and layer two. We talked about scaling and how you should always try to scale on, the, on layer one, even though you have a good layer two solution. A lot of people will disagree in Bitcoin. They think that Bitcoin is 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 great as it is and any um any idea to change it um could affect, you know, uh not just the future but the past. And what they what they mean by that is, for example, if you make a change that renders previous transactions um Basically, things won't work the same way that they're working before. So, for example, changing something like the address format on the first layer where the address format doesn't work with the old one. So, therefore, you're for forcing almost everyone to, like, move over. A lot of people don't want to do these things. They don't want to make these changes on on the on the first layer. Uh, you talked about – we talked about this earlier um, – but uh, I know Casper's trying to solve the the trilemma of scale, at, which is you know uh, you have decentralization and security, but but also developer friendly. But I think there's a fourth, and I think there's also user experience and and being user friendly, um, and maybe not so much developer friendly. But you see a lot of projects, you see a lot of blockchains, you see this issue, um, I mentioned it very briefly before, where they're willing to let decentralization and security go down, but at the same time um, have user experience go up. And then it's the, it's the opposite effect. I guess, like, how do you, should we care? Should we care to keep everything going, uh, rising at the same time? Um, I think yes. I mean... Innovation is difficult, right? It's it, it, it just is. It's it's never going to be easy. Um, I also view, you know, trying to be scalable and secure while being developer friendly and user friendly. I, I view those two things as completely separate. Like, you you, I, I don't think one actually impacts the other. And I'll, I'll tell you why. On the scalability and security, <clears throat> it's mostly work on the protocol, uh, work on the consensus algorithm. And, you know, like I talked to you about, you know, um, 
just little engineering fixes, make your execution engine faster, make your um, you know, block size smaller. There's, there's a lot of things you can do uh, for the first two. To be developer friendly, I think it really, really comes down to embracing open programming standards. Um, it seems to be a direction a lot of projects are going in. It's, it's something we do. And, you know, there's a lot of protocols also doing this, which I think is great for the industry. But, you know, if you use, for example, WebAssembly as, as your execution environment, uh, you know, instead of having a proprietary programming language, you can support pretty much every single programming language out there over time. You know, you pick a few favorites right out the gate. We're, we're starting with Rust and AssemblyScript. But, you know, over time, you can support C, C++, JavaScript, whatever the developer wants to use, uh, which is great, right? You don't want to create another wall for them. You know, it's not like developers are jumping over themselves to build on blockchains, at least as a percentage of total developers. There's 27 million out there. And it's a small percentage that are actively building stuff on blockchains right now. So making it easier for them is 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 you know, all about embracing open programming standards. It has the added benefit that these are ecosystems onto themselves, right? Rust has a ton of documentation out there. There's ID and SDK integrations out there. And so, you know, people are able to build things in an environment that they're used to and don't have to like relearn things. And so being developer friendly comes down to, you know, embracing open programming standards, but then also listening to them and giving them features that they want. Um, and I can give you like a few very specific examples, and this goes down to user experience, right? Like, what 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 do these features enable developers to offer end users? So I'll just give one example here, uh, which is flexible payment code. Um, right now, the sender pays for everything. Like, whenever you do a transaction, sender always pays. There's no way for like receiver to pay or sender and receiver to split the transaction fee based on XYZ criteria. Now, if you enable like some flexibility around payment code, you can structure all sorts of systems. You can have like automated loaning systems and you know, the fee for actually transferring the money is on the receiver's end or the sender's end. And there's a lot of like user experience that you can create once you've made this payment code flexible. And so that's just one example of the kind of feature that will enable developers to make better UX and other, you know, user experiences, uh, uh, good. So how can how can our listeners follow what's going on with Casper? I know it's been really years uh, in in the works, years and years, and um, building such a foundation and community that I'm part of. Um, how can everyone follow? How can everyone listen? Um, and um, how can they, you know, be involved? Um, yeah, so I, I'd say there's primarily three venues. If people want to learn about the project, uh, casperlabs.io is our website, and there's a lot of detail there. Two, um, you know, if people want to contribute as um, uh, to the actual code base or review the code base or become, you know, a staker, uh, go to our GitHub, github.com slash casperlabs. Um, all our, our entire code repository is there. Feel free to view it, contribute to it, download it, run a node. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be starting a, a testnet um, most likely end of, end, end of March, early April, and then a second version, uh, call it Q2, Q3. And so, you know, we'd love to have people participate in that. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, go, go to our GitHub and you can do it automatically. Or if you need to get in touch with any of us, uh, just uh, come to Telegram. Uh, we're t.me slash Casper Labs. Our, our, our group 
uh, is just called Casper Labs. And if you join Telegram, you know, myself, our CTO, a bunch of our developers, basically our entire team is on that channel. And so if, you know, someone needs to get in touch with us uh, regarding uh, being part of the project or contributing in any way, shape or form, we'll try to be as responsive as we can. Amazing. Amazing. Rinald, thank you so much for, for taking the time uh, and coming on Untold Stories today. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks a ton. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.